Welcome everyone to another episode of Idiots with Idioms. Thank you for joining us for the first time or yet again. Anyway, we have a great episode today. We are looking at idioms from the legal world. So we're looking at idioms. This is an American English episode, but it's an American English episode focused on idioms that have started in the legal world and then found their way into the world of broader usage. Anyway, before we go any further, I'd like to introduce my co-host and partner in idiocy, Marcello De Giorgi, and he has a little idiom to get us started today. So Marcello, throw it at us. Hi, Ethan. Thank you. It's uh, really great to, to be back at business with you. Let's start straight away with, uh, with an idiom that I found by uh, thinking about law. Uh, you know, being an Italian and all, uh, and all we, we don't have a um, really uh, good story with following the rules. Uh, it's really, I would say that it's not in our in our nature, and so I found an idiot, an idiom that, uh, in a way, uh, wings at that is not following the the rules, which is turn a blind eye, and uh, this is something that we have also in Italian. We say just to um, to close an eye, uh, turn a blind eye. Basically, the meaning is to pretend that you're not seeing something, pretend that you. I haven't heard something, pretend in this case, according to the law, that you didn't know that something uh, was not lawful, or in, in many cases, you would say it in Italian when you, I don't know, you, you were speeding, but you were just speeding, I don't know, 55 instead of 50, and you say, please turn a blind eye for this time, is something you say. And I found out that it, it has quite a, quite a story, this idiom. Because uh, this expression is believed to come from the siege of Copenhagen in 1801, in which uh, Lord Nelson, uh, at the time he was second in command of the of the English fleet, he, he was ordered to withdraw, uh, but he didn't stop. Basically, he pretended that he didn't see the, the flagship. Uh, signals um, and he uh, continued into 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 the battle. Um, I, I found that actually the expression is a little bit older than this because the first ever um, recorded usage, usage in print is uh, in a, uh, in a work by a British uh, novelist, Francis Latham. I, I, I hope I'm not mispronouncing it. Uh, in a book called Men and Manners, which is uh, in uh, which was published in 1800, so it was one year before the the siege of Copenhagen. Uh, so we could say that this idiom was there somewhere, but it was popularized by by Lord Nelson. He, he may not have coined this, but his action uh, have made it into a, an everyday expression, really popular in Italy. I love the story with uh, Admiral Horatio Nelson um, because he said the 
the signal, his right, he was blind in his right eye. Actually, he was missing his right eye. And uh, so the signal to retreat was on his right. And he said, oh, I can't see that way. If you want to just say something, if you want me to see something, it has to be to my left. Um, definitely not a true story for how we get this idiom, but one of the better fake origin stories of all of the idioms uh, out there. Uh, so awesome. Thank you for that, Marcello. Uh, that's a great start. We have a guest with us today. He's a guest that I know very well. Uh, in fact, he is my elder brother uh, by three years. Uh, so, and he's a lawyer. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us. And let me say for listeners of National Public Radio's Car Talk, don't drive like my brother. Thank you, Ethan. Uh, I'm really, really happy to, to be here. I thought you were going to say don't podcast like my brother, but I can't uh, I can't endorse that statement because I am a huge fan of this pod and a regular listener. Yes. In addition to being my brother, Andrew is one of the most devoted uh, friends of this podcast. So we're very happy to have him. We're going to take a quick break and we will jump into even more legal idioms when we get back. Andrew, once again, it's a it's a pleasure to to have you on board. Let's start right away with your first idiom, which happens to be the only one that I that I knew. I knew it from basically TV shows. It's uh, uh, used a lot of times in uh, in crime shows. Uh, I I could recall it from CSI. It's it's a show that was super popular in Italy. Uh, but I let you explain uh, what it is all about. Absolutely. So the first idiom that I prepared for today is to plead the fifth or take the fifth. And it originates from the Fifth Amendment to the US Constitution, which has a number of provisions, but one of them protects the defendant in criminal actions from so-called self-incrimination. And the origin of this idiom is actually not from the United, or the origin of this legal concept is not from the United States. It's from uh, England. Um, at one point, Protestants were being uh, tortured until they would confess or promise that they were innocent of the crime of which they were being accused. And this was called taking the oath. Uh, and Oliver Cromwell uh, disbanded this practice and enshrined a legal protection against self-incrimination, which was then copied by the authors of the US Constitution. The, reason it's an idiom is because it's used outside the strict legal context when someone refuses to answer a question, the answer to which would reveal that they engaged in some sort of prohibited conduct. But it's often tongue in cheek because when someone says, I'll plead the fifth or I'll take the fifth, they're sort of giving a wink and a nod to the idea that they did in fact do the thing uh, pertaining to the question. So if someone says, you know, who took my sandwich from the fridge at work? Uh, and someone says, you know, I'll plead the fifth on that. That means they took your sandwich, uh, but they're also being sort of tongue in cheek about it. The usage of this idiom really peaked by, by uh, a massive extent during the McCarthy era in the late, in the fifties and, and early sixties, uh, because people were being hauled before Congress in hearings to 
be asked whether they were members of the Communist Party or endorsed the tenets of the Communist Party. And a lot of them were literally invoking their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Um, and then there was a debate over whether that was acceptable because just saying you were communist wasn't a crime, strictly speaking. Um, so that was sort of a sorted, a sorted episode in, in modern US history. Um, and since then, uh, use has held steady at a much lower frequency, uh, both in TV shows and otherwise. Can you elaborate on that a bit? So why, what is the problem with saying I plead the fifth when one is not sus suspected of an actual crime? Well, your right against self-incrimination sort of implicitly pertains to incrimination. In other words, criminality. So uh, there has to be um, some sort of at least hypothetical nexus between the answer to the question uh, and the possibility that you would have that used as evidence against you in a subsequent criminal or quasi-criminal proceeding. Um, so when you're talking to police, uh, theoretically, almost any question they can ask you pertains to an ongoing criminal investigation because that's what they do. But it gets more ambiguous uh, in the context of tribunals, formal and informal, uh, because they don't have the power to investigate or prosecute crimes um, in some instances. In other instances, it's all fair game. I, when, when researching this, I uh, became, I read an article that suggested that this is one of the many idioms that entered the broader lexicon via crime shows. So for instance, I, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but there's the story of how the Miranda rights or the what they always read in the crime shows where they say you have the right to remain silent. Of course, that that is in a part of the Fifth Amendment, but you have the right to remain silent wasn't a thing people knew about except via crime shows because they would always read it in crime shows. People wouldn't be saying, go around and saying, oh, I plead the fifth on that until it became popularized via uh, crime procedurals. Uh, is that something that you uh, would be able to weigh in on? Absolutely. Crime procedurals are really interesting because it is A, the main mechanism by which Americans learn about the legal system, and B, relatedly, the main source of public misunderstandings about what goes on in the legal system. Uh, this is specifically relevant to the idea of taking or pleading the fifth because the version of that concept that is conveyed in crime procedurals is substantially inaccurate most of the time. Um, and in fact, you have to, under, under sort of newer Supreme Court precedents, you, you have to be very explicit and work very hard um, in order for a court to then recognize that you properly invoked this right. Uh, they've really whittled away uh, at the sort of prophylactic efficacy of Miranda in the 50 years since, that being Miranda versus Arizona, which was the case in the 60s that said that uh, the police have to read you the little speech that everyone knows from shows like Law and Order, et cetera. So to give some examples in movies, I mean, it showed up, it basically in every crime procedural you can think of, uh, this idiom has shown up because obviously this idea, I think this idea of 
not self-incriminating or specifically the right to not speak when uh, faced with legal, with faced with incrimination um, is really conducive to, to good storytelling. So when you Google uh, Fifth Amendment on uh, and search it in IMDb, uh, the list is so long, it's not even worth me reading out all of them. Just take my word that it's a very long list of, of titles that uh, are tagged with this or involve the use of the Fifth Amendment. That, that's right. And um, I think sort of an interesting corollary to what you said uh, is that the crime procedurals often have someone plead the fifth in the lead up to them, them somehow being found guilty or otherwise held accountable for the very conduct that they're refusing to speak to. But that in some ways kind of misdescribes the purpose and effect of what, what the right against self-incrimination is supposed to effectuate, which is that it shouldn't have any specific relationship to whether you're actually guilty of some offense related to the question being addressed to you. Um, but crime procedurals uh, and, and other movies um, take sort of a very specific view uh, towards guilt and innocence uh, that reinforces rather than sort of counters the public intuition about who criminals are, what they look like, how they behave, and what goes on in a courtroom. This next idiom is ambulance chaser, uh, which is a very interesting idiom. So this is an idiom, I'm not gonna say what it means, but I will say what I thought it means before I started preparing for this episode. So what I thought that this idiom meant is when an ambulance is driving down the street and it turns its sirens on, the cars will move out of the way for the ambulance. Ideally, the cars will move out of the way for the ambulance. The ambulance will manage to work its way through traffic even if it's a busy street. And sometimes, once in a while, you'll see a car doing something very illegal, which is they'll pull out behind the ambulance and then speed uh, a few meters behind the ambulance or a few feet behind the ambulance so that they can also use the ambulance as a means of cutting through traffic for them. And then they can get through any red lights or anything just by staying directly behind the ambulance. And so I thought that's what ambulance chaser meant. So I've been using this idiom incorrectly, or at least I thought this idiom meant something else uh, basically forever. Anyway, I will let Andrew explain what ambulance chaser actually means, but I can assure you it does not mean driving directly behind an ambulance. Ethan, your misunderstanding is uh, more dramatic than the real meaning. Uh, an ambulance chaser is a derogatory term used for personal injury attorneys in the US. And by way of background, uh, the way that injured persons typically recover for their injuries in the US is to retain a personal injury attorney who then sues the company or person who injured them. And in actual fact, a lot of the times it ends up being uh, insurance companies on both sides, especially in the automobile context. Regardless, the personal injury attorneys who were trying to stir up business were um, referred to as ambulance chasers because they would always sh show up soon after 
a horrific accident or mass casualty event in order to try and solicit potential clients from amongst the population of injured persons. Uh, and sometimes you would get competing ambulance chasers because they would be fighting to see who could sign up the most injured persons in a major accident to be their clients as opposed to someone else's clients. So you can sort of see this play out uh, in the uh, iconic movie, Aaron Brockovich, uh, where there is uh, a subplot about competition between different plaintiff's firms to try and assemble the largest group of injured persons from groundwater contamination uh, so that they have the biggest block of claims that they can bring against the defendant company. Um, the usage of this idiom peaked between 1900 and 1940. Uh, the public conception of the role of the personal injury attorney, I think waxes and wanes. The turn of the century, turn of the, the 20th century, so around 1900, there was a lot of discomfort and public criticism of the, ad, the, the invention of attorney advertising. This was considered very ungentlemanly um, and sort of a corruption of the integrity of the profession. Uh, but now, at least in the personal injury context, it's kind of taken as a given. So it's impossible to watch a US sporting event on a major television network without seeing at least one commercial uh, for the big personal injury attorney in your geographic area, usually with some bad graphics um, and a very memorable phone number, sometimes presented as a jingle. Uh, and the different states have different requirements for what's permitted in the way of ads, which is sort of the legacy of the, the criticism I was outlining earlier. And so that's why you don't get uh, ads for your local personal injury attorney in many states that are nearly as uh, sort of exciting or packed with stock images or, or, or smiling people doing gardening as you would, for example, in a pharmaceutical ad. Um, so that, that's what an ambulance chaser actually is. Um, don't sort of call uh, your friend who is a personal injury attorney uh, this unless they have a sense of humor about themselves. What I, what I found really interesting while researching this, uh, this idiom is the fact that uh, it is actually something that uh, injury attorneys uh, used to do. At least I found that uh, ambulance chasing is prohibited by, by state rules. So it, it, it was not something uh, it's something that happened. It's, some, it's not something that, uh, okay, and I'm not saying that everybody would do that, but it is something that really happened and it's something that is not, it is not something that is just related to, to a joke or to the fact that uh, injury lawyers uh, would look for injured people in order to, to make some money, uh, but it is that there, there are some rules against, you know, um, getting to uh, the place of a disaster or um, uh, really doing this kind of thing. Well, Mar Marcello, I think you're making a really interesting sociological point. Um, and this is also a problem for legal historians, which is when you find that there's a law against something, is that evidence that it was actually happening or is it evidence that it was popular to ban something that wasn't really happening? Uh, and we know from today's public opinion climate that 
laws get passed all the time to banish something uh, for which there are rumors, but which is not a prevalent practice generating sort of real problems for very many real people. I'm not saying that no one ever literally showed up at a crash scene and, and started badgering families in order to sign up clients. Um, I'm just saying that uh, it might be an instance of preventative regulation because of a practice that was considered so distasteful that it was popular to ban it uh, regardless of the prevalence. Well, in the 1888 book, Railway Adventures and Anecdotes, uh, one particular railway adventure slash anecdote uh, describes an accident in which a gentleman on the train just started walking down, the, the train crashed, and then a gentleman on the train, a gentleman as described in this passage, just started walking down the train cars, handing out his card to everyone who could, could possibly find. And that just seems like good business to me. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting that this practice of post-catastrophe advertising is specifically maligned in the context of personal injury attorneys who are seeking, let's remember, to represent the injured persons in attempting to recover from a wrongdoer. Whereas it took many more years in the US for there to be laws restricting the ability of say, medical uh, billing companies or insurance companies sending someone to stand by the side of uh, someone recovering in their hospital bed, asking them how they're going to make good on the cost of the very treatment that they are presently then receiving. So um, there's definitely a, a, a bit of a spin campaign going on here in the background. And I think it's one that will exist as long as the personal injury bar uh, continues to be a thorn in the side of you know, industrial operations that inevitably hurt some people. Ambulance chasing has an alternative usage in, um, in scientific papers. And perhaps you all both also came across this uh, while looking this up beforehand. But um, in uh, papers, there's a phenomenon that is observed and has holds up to uh, statistical rigor that when a anomalous uh, or norm-breaking finding is found in a, is published in a particular subject, there's a flurry of papers then written about that topic. So if, for instance, I said, published a paper, uh, or someone published a paper that said, um, I don't think Newton was right about gravity. I know very little about physics, so I'm, I'm really going out of my, uh, out of where I actually know things now, <laughs> but I'm really veering out of my lane. But let's just say someone wrote a paper that said Newton was wrong about uh, gravity. Then it would follow that there would be a huge number of uh, papers written either disputing, nuancing, or confirming that finding. But to me, that just seems like the an intuitive, right? When someone comes up with something that is outside of the norm, you actually want a lot of attention to and a lot of skepticism and commentary on that finding. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure why a negative idiom is used to describe this particular practice. So what I what I absolutely love about your example is that people who understand the real meaning of ambulance chasing versus people who had your prior understanding could both adapt it 
to the circumstance you're describing because the writers of the response scientific papers are both chasing a siren because it's interesting and loud and also arriving at the scene of a disaster to try and academically or reputationally profiteer from someone else's calamitous misunderstanding of a basic point. Anyway, uh, if you ha uh, have recently experienced uh, an accident, uh, please feel free to call 1-800-IDIOMS-1. That's 1-800-IDIOMS-1, and we'll be here to offer no help whatsoever. So our next idiom today uh, is an idiom that saw its peak in usage um, almost well, approximately a hundred, approximately 200 years ago, actually. And I think this is a first for idiots with idioms because almost all of the idioms we analyzed are idioms that are prominent in current lexicon. However, it's experiencing a bit of a resurgence now. So this idiom is to read the riot act to someone or read them the riot act. Uh, I'll let Andrew explain what's going on here. But when you Google the usage of this, uh, of this particular idiom, it saw a peak in its usage in the year 1819. And it's almost like something happened in the year 1819 and coming up to the year 1819 that caused this idiom to be used very prominently. And then it was used scarcely from the years 1840 or so all the way to 1980. So almost left the lexicon entirely. And then finally in 2000, it started picking up again and now it is once again a, a commonly used expression. Uh, so thank you to the uh, unofficial engine of the show, um, Google Ngrams, for, for providing with that information. Andrew, uh, first of all, can you tell us what Read Them the Riot Act means? And then maybe you have some insight as to why the usage of it has uh, changed so, so uh, dramatically. Well, I'll do my best. I. Uh... My understanding is that it originates from the Riot Act of 1714 in England, which is a really interesting piece of legislation. It basically says that uh, if 12 or more people um, gather unlawfully and disturb the public peace, then the sheriff or the constable can show up and read them the proclamation. And once the proclamation is read, they have 60 minutes to disperse, or else they are subject to capital punishment, in other words, death. So I will read the proclamation now. Our sovereign Lord the King chargeth and commandeth all persons being assembled immediately to disperse themselves and peaceably to depart to their habitations or to their lawful business upon the pains contained in the act made in the first year of King George for preventing tumults and riotous assemblies, God save the king. The funny thing is that if the crowd was getting too unruly and was engaged in felonious behavior, then the sheriff or constable could shorten the 60 minute waiting period in order to start gathering people and executing and, and putting them on death row. Um, so query how useful the 60 minute waiting period actually was to people who were engaged in protest. Anyway, this law was repealed in England in 1973, um, probably because it had fallen into pretty severe disuse. And today, 
if you say you're going to read someone the riot act, it is an idiom that indicates you are going to um, let them know that if their bad behavior continues, that there will be severe consequences. It's, I think of it sort of as a cousin of the expression, give them the business. Uh, so there's going to be some, some raised voices and some stern talking to coming down the pipe for whoever you're going to read the riot act to. So the mystery here, well, there's a lot of mysteries here. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But one mystery here is what happened in 1819 that caused it to reach an all-time high by a huge margin in uh, appearances in, in print and therefore likely overhaul, overall usage. And if I'm understanding correctly, it seems like what may have happened is that it was the subject of a debate in the British Parliament and therefore the different parliamentarians we're saying the word riot act so many times that then in the record of those debates, it appeared over and over and over again. And thus uh, it became uh, an unusually common word used in 1819, but that doesn't explain all of it. So if anyone has any insight into what happened in the world of riot acts uh, around 1819, uh, please do let us know. You can let us know uh, by sending us a message on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or idiotswithidioms at gmail.com, any channel you like, please do not actually call 1-800-IDIOMS-1. That's not a real phone number. Should have clarified this earlier, but, but do not call that for any reason. Uh, so a question about this, about this story. Uh, if the, the constable what would go into the crowd of people and start reading the riot act, uh, why would the people just let the person read it? And if I understand correctly, the riot act had to be read in its entirety to have legal force in that instance. So if, the, if it wasn't read out loud for everyone, then they couldn't invoke the riot act and start uh, uh, rounding up people to be executed. Interestingly, we have some historical examples that provide insight into this phenomenon because as you can imagine, uh, a crowd that is actually rioting is not going to stop whatever they are doing and defer to the constable so that he can explain to them that they're on notice about how they're breaching the peace. And in several instances, crowds apparently tore the piece of paper out of the hands of the person who was reading it. And I think in actual fact, the effect of that would be that they are showing they are on notice about what the reading meant and that no one would get too caught up over this or that word when they were charged with disturbing the peace. Fair enough. Okay, so I haven't found a foolproof loophole in the riot act, which is just to beat up the guy trying to read it. No, and the, and the wait, the, as I explained earlier, they also eliminated the wait for 59 minutes and cause havoc loophole because the 60 minute waiting period could be arbitrarily shortened if there was a reason to do so. This is a pretty uh, close analogy to some things that we've been seeing in the US in the last couple of years because um, there are curfew laws in the case of public disturbances in most major US cities. And those curfew laws allow the chief executive or some related uh, official to set a time by which everyone must clear the streets and return to their place of residence. Now this 
raises the same problem as the 60 minute waiting period under the riot act, which is how much notice is needed for people who are protesting or in fact, just going about their business running errands, uh, especially if they're like a 45 minute walk from home before it's no longer permissible for them to be out and about. And uh, this can become especially troubling in the case where uh, things are not going well or the perceived breach of the peace is escalating quite rapidly. And then uh, the person in charge declares a curfew that starts in a very short amount of time, even less than 60 minutes. And so there was some controversy in a couple of US cities last year and the year before, uh, where there were allegations that curfews had been declared with you know, five or 10 minutes to spare before the time when you were no longer allowed to be doing what you were doing. Of course, the only way that the people who were protesting could get the message and get out of the way in time to avoid uh, violating the curfew was to either be staring at their phones all the time with all of their news alerts turned on, or in fact, if anyone stood up on top of a platform and read, uh, I assume, something almost verbatim like the proclamation that I read a few moments ago. Uh, I, I really hope that our listeners were pretty fast in understanding their theory concerning the 1819, because uh, I, I happen to, to, to have uh, an answer to, to your question, Ethan, because 1819 was the, uh, was the year of the Peterloo massacre, which was one of the biggest, one of the biggest massacre uh, made by uh, the, the English police forces uh, in a, that basically sedated a, um, a rebellion with more than between four and 700 injured people. And uh, it happened to, to uh, this event happened to have a lot of a, a huge echo in, in, in the press at the time. I know about this story because actually the Guardian, the, the, the British newspaper, uh, came out of the Manchester Observer, which was a, a newspaper at the time that uh, was basically back in the, the protester. And uh, okay, nowadays it is something that we, we don't really uh, study that much, but at the time it, it had a huge impact on, uh, on the public sphere. And I guess that it was, uh, um, it was used, uh, the, the term uh, riot act was used and used a, a lot of times in, in the publication of the time after the Peterloo massacre. That is a much more specific and thorough answer than I ever expected. I thought I would go to my grave not knowing why 1819 was the year that people used that a lot. So thank you very much. You can go now, Ethan. Uh, I'm good. Peace. And now it's the time for the peak moment of our show, the moment that you have been all uh, waiting for, the Idiot's Gambit. Ethan, up to you. Alrighty, we have another edition of the Idiot's Gambit today, the show where uh, we present our guest with three uh, idioms, or we present our guest with one idiom. We read three explanations and the guest must guess which uh, idiom or which explanation is the correct explanation for this week's idiom. 
Andrew, are you ready to play the Idiot's Gambit? I have been looking forward to playing the Idiot's Gambit for months. Let's begin. This week's idiom is drop me a line, which means to send someone a brief note or message. Explanation one. 16th century deep sea fishermen used a variety of indicators to determine the best method to bring in fish that day. If it was cloudy, the fishermen would send their lines deeper into the ocean, and on a sunny day, they would fish in more shallow waters. If the water was colder, they would use fresh bait, and if it was warm, they would use older bait. The most optimistic of these fishermen would start their day by fishing with no consideration of the factors whatsoever. They would just rig up their fishing gear and without considering any of these at first, for their first cast of the day, they would just cast their gear straight into the water. So just throw the gear out there and hope that it works. They started calling this practice dropping a line because they were just dropping their fishing line into the ocean without any uh, preparation. And over time, the fishermen started using their phrase to describe their communication. So if you send someone a short, undetailed note without a lot of dressing up, a lot of pleasantries or anything like that, just a short straight to the point note, they were dropping each other a line because that's what they would do when they were fishing. If they sent a quick, quick cast without a lot of adornment, it was just dropping a line. Explanation number two. In the theater, actors are expected to memorize dozens or even hundreds of lines for each performance. Of course, anyone who has been subjected to a high school production of Hamlet knows that it doesn't always work out that way. In early Broadway, certain actors were performing in several different shows at a time, and it became impossible for, the, for them to remember the lines for all of their parts. Theater companies fortunately figured out a solution. An employee of the show would sit in the first row of the theater. They would bring a stack of cue cards with prompts on them to help the reformers find their lines. When the cue card holder would show the, the brief note to prompt the actor, it was called dropping them a line. Now, this practice of holding up cue cards, at least in most theater, went out of practice fairly quickly. However, the practice of using, a, uh, using dropping a line to mean writing a quick note continued to be used within the theater. And eventually, like so many idioms, it progressed from the theater into general lexicon. And finally, explanation number three. Before the era of telephones, computers, and even telegrams, people com communicated in person or via letters. Typically, these letters were long, thought out, multi-page, multi-paragraph uh, bits of information. But once in a while, someone would send a letter that was just one line. These letters often contained important messages like, have you seen my socks? Or, hey, where's my horse? And how would, a, uh, and how would they deliver these letters uh, to someone? Well, they would drop these one-line letters in their postal box for the postal uh, carrier, for the postal courier to pick up. And so it became dropping a line. You were dropping a one-line letter into a mailbox. Thus, the phrase dropping a line means dropping a, uh, comes from just dropping your short letter into, into the uh, 
postal carrying box. Anyway, here are your three. So to recap, here are your three explanations. Number one, fishermen would drop a line in the ocean uh, without testing the conditions. Um, number two, theater in the theater actors would be showed a cue card uh, at the front of the in front of the stage to help them remember their lines, which was called dropping a line. Or number three, if you wrote a one line letter and you dropped it in the mailbox, it was called dropping a line because you were just putting one line of text in your mailbox. Well, I, I, I have to go with number three. Um, and the reason is uh, because I refuse to uh, acknowledge that an idiom of general usage resulted from uh, strange theater people uh, or mariners. Are you and sure? So because idioms such as stealing my thunder, of course, come from the theater. And that's fine, uh, but, but that idiom's so good that I can get over the origin. Um, you don't think this idiom is as good as stealing one's thunder? No, no, this idiom has no thunder. Um, okay. But, well, but, but before you tell me whether I was right or wrong, I must tell you that I knew a guy who changed the idiom to drop me a dime because he liked to think that it referred to the fact that a phone call cost a dime on a public payphone when he was a kid. And I found all of this very upsetting. You know what? That's better. That, that's actually, his version is better. From now on, it's drop me a dime. I declare it. Anyway, you have successfully avoided all of our distractions. You are not enticed by overly specific stories of fishermen and theaters. In fact, in this case, for the first time in the history of the Idiot's Gambit, the most straightforward explanation is the correct one. Congratulations, you have passed the Idiot's Gambit, which means that we must unfortunately let you leave this show because it's a show for idiots only. You've proven that you're not an idiot. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, we look forward to maybe at some point having you back for yet another show on uh, legal idioms. Um, but yeah, it's been a pleasure. Pleasure having you join us uh, on the show. It was an absolute joy. Thank you for having me. And I can assure you that just because I passed the idiot's gambit this time does not mean that I am done with idiocy. In fact, I am just getting started. I believe you. It was really great, Andrew, having you. Uh, it's a little bit of a bummer that you managed to, <laughs> to find the right idiom. We are really eager to, to, to trick someone into the, the, the wrong answer, but uh, uh, congrats, it, it was, you, you did it right. You, you could say it takes an idiot to understand an idiot. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we really hope that you enjoyed the, the show. Thank you once again, Andrew, for uh, uh, having enlightened us with some uh, uh, idioms related to the, to the law board. Thank you, Marcello, for joining us. Thank you very much again, Andrew. Uh, and thank you to all of you who have listened to us uh, today. 
Um, as always, please remember to uh, subscribe, review, recommend. Uh, you can always reach out to us on Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, actually, uh, we've started to have a few people reach out to us uh, on these channels. So thank you very much to the folks who have already uh, gotten in touch with us and please continue to do so. If you have a specific legal idiom you'd like us to uh, talk about or just to get out there, uh, feel free to send it to us and we will feature it on the next episode uh, of the show. So with that, uh, uh, I think we can wrap up the show. Thank you very much uh, and have a good rest of your day. I just wanted to make a podcast with my friends. Just wanted to make a podcast with my friends. And look at me now, making a podcast with my friends. And look at me now, making a podcast with my friends. was explaining to someone at a bar last night how where curry favor came from and they couldn't oh. believe it they couldn't believe it they, did they were they just completely taken by this story no after i described to them favel the horse they t- changed the topic <laughs> you said wait 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 there's more yeah <laughs>